Today's scripture verse is from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14, to chapter 13, all the way to the end, verse 14. So in your pew Bibles, this can be found in page 822. Second Corinthians twelve fourteen. Now I am ready to visit you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you, because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will very gladly spend So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? Be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you. Yet crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. Did I exploit you through any of the men I sent you? I urged Titus to go to you, and I sent our brother with him. Titus did not exploit you, did he? Did, he, did we not act in the same spirit and follow the same course? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? We have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ, and everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. For I am afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and, may not, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I am afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others. Since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, Yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power we live with him to serve you. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. Not that people will see that we have stood the test, but that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong, and our prayer is for your perfection. This is why I write these things when I am absent, and when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. The authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. Finally, brothers, goodbye. 
Aim for perfection. Listen to my appeal. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints send their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. May God bless the reading of his word. So I think all of you probably know the name Billy Graham. Most of you would know the name Tim Keller. And some of you would know the name Don Carson or D.A. Carson. They recently had a public argument. Well, it wasn't meant to be public, but it eventually blew up and became public. And, and it's always a very awkward when, when prominent Christians have this argument, or have any argument, right? But some things you've got to argue about. So this is not a story about Billy Graham, actually. This is a story about Billy Graham's grandson. I only mention Billy Graham because you know him and you won't know the grandson's name. I don't even know how to pronounce the na- grandson's name because it's a Slavic name, only it's written in English letters. If it were written in a Cyrillic alphabet, I could pronounce it. But, I, I don't know, Chavidian maybe. Tulian Chavidian, I don't know. And so there's this Chavidian, and then, uh, so he's a pastor of a large church down in Florida, and Billy Graham's grandson. Uh, Tim Keller, pastor of a large church in New York City, and somebody else's grandson. And then Don Carson, who's a, one of the leading evangelical New Testament scholars, and a pugilist. A verbal pugilist. You know, he, he, he defends the faith. So they were part of the same organization. They were concerned about the way Christianity was drifting in America today. Because so much of Christianity is being influenced by culture. And they were really concerned particularly about what the younger crowd is doing. And so they formed this coalition called the Gospel Coalition. Because they were concerned about what other, another group was doing. So they kind of got together and said, well, what can we do to strengthen the gospel? To strengthen the preaching of the gospel? What can we do to help people understand what the gospel really is? And it turns out that they then had a quarrel over the gospel and what the gospel really is. The issue really has to do with grace, which is pretty fundamental. If you're going to talk about the gospel, you're going to talk about grace. God's riches at Christ's expense is one way we describe grace. But the, the issue is really... Uh, how far does grace extend? If we're recipients of God's grace, if God forgives our sins, what's really to keep us from sinning? Like one comedian said, God's in the business of forgiving sins, and that's convenient for me because I'm in the business of committing sins. How can you proclaim grace and that God forgives us because of Jesus' death for us and yet not open the door to people to living any which way they want? And so Chavidian, well, what happens actually is you you don't want people to just live wildly and dishonor God. So you lay down some kind of rules and regulations. And then people get really obsessed over those rules and regulations and it becomes really uh, stultifying for them. It really stifles them. And so they break free from those regulations. And then they proclaim grace, grace, only grace. And we bounce back and forth between these two extremes, between everything's of grace and then laying down the law so that we don't take advantage of grace. And that was really what the debate came down to. What is the gospel? Is grace alone enough to save us? 
if we appear before the final judgment of God at the end of time, and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? And all we can say is, because Jesus died for my sin, will we be saved? If that's all we can say, Jesus died for my sin, will we be saved? And Chavidian is part of a small, well, I don't know how small, he's part of a a large, I'm sorry, he's part of a sizable group in evangelicalism that says it's all grace. Christ died for your sins. You shouldn't live any way you want, but Christ died for your sins, past, present, future. So however you live, you'll get into heaven because Christ died for your sins. As long as you throw yourself on his mercy, as long as you believe in him, you'll get to heaven. And then Keller and Carson's part of another group that really has concerns about what this leads to. They argue, no, grace is, in a sense, in a limited sense, grace is not enough. We actually have to live a holy life. And so they were worried, you know, Chavidian's side is worried that the minute you say that, you impose law and you discourage people and you lead to work salvation. And, and so Chavidian's frustrated with that and writing articles against that. And then Carson and, and Keller are worried about saying grace covers everything so you can live however you want. And so they ended up splitting. Now, how this is relevant. If, if you've been here for a while, you would have heard me speak on this before. Not because it's my hobby horse. Because we've preached through the Bible. And this was a real live issue in Paul's day. It was going on in Corinth. But it was going on in most of his churches in the New Testament. The churches were struggling with this. Because what was the solution? You know, look at the Old Testament, right? The Hebrew Bible. Israel constantly wandering away from God. So what was God's solution? He gave the Ten Commandments. He gave the law. And still they wandered. And so what was his solution? The priests and the prophets proclaimed the law and imposed the law. And still they wandered. So you've got the law as an effort throughout the Old Testament. The law is an effort to constrain sin. Now, in the city of Corinth, put yourself in the first century here. You've got the Jews who really kind of despise the Gentiles because these Gentiles worshipped idols. And these Gentiles, excuse me, but, but pretty much would have sex with anything that moved. At least that's how the Jews saw it. You know, Jews were monotheistic and they were monogamous. And, and they looked at the sexual immorality and they looked at the idolatry in the Gentile world and they were horrified. So as the gospel comes in and Paul starts preaching grace, the, the Jews come to faith in Christ, but what are they going to worry about? They're going to worry about these Gentiles who all their lives have worshipped idols and all their lives have lived sexually licentious. And they, how can you bring them into the church? You've got to teach them the law so they obey the Bible. And Paul is worried about the law because the, you can't just teach them the Ten Commandments. If you teach the law, you teach all of it. And really, in order to come to faith, they've got to become Jews. They've got to be circumcised. They've got to keep the Sabbath. They've got to keep all these food laws. And, and Paul's saying, this is really offensive to Gentiles. All this stuff to the Gentiles just is weird. So Paul's worried about excluding the Gentiles by imposing the law. The, the Jews are worried about inviting sin into the church. So they impose the law. And so the two groups are in conflict. And we've seen that throughout 
Second uh, Corinthians, as we've been preaching throughout Second Corinthians, and we see it come up again in this passage. That's the background of this passage. Now, what I want to do is spend, oh, eight to ten minutes looking at the content of this passage, and then we'll talk about the ramifications of it for our lives and for this dispute between Chavidian and Keller and Carson, but also for how we live as Christians. So give me eight to ten minutes, we'll look at the text and figure, well, the text has four sections. And actually, it repeats itself, so it has two sections twice. It goes in the order of A, B, A, B. Paul makes a point, he connects with the, with the Corinthians emotionally, and then he makes a theological point. Then he comes back and connects with the Corinthians emotionally again, and then he makes another theological point. So what we're going to look at is his emotional connection, his theological point, his emotional connection, his theological point, and then we'll wrap it up and say, how does it apply to us? So four ideas come out. Take a look, first of all. This is page 822 in the Pew Bible, and we'll look at it kind of closely, so follow along. 822. 821 it starts, maybe. No, 822. Full of contradictions this morning. Okay. Chapter 12, verses 14 to 18. Now, I'm going to focus on verses 14 to 15. Look at what Paul says. Remember, he begins by connecting with them emotionally. What his point is here? You know, it's like a parent. If you're a parent or if you're a child, you know, if your parent comes to you and says, or if you as a parent say, I love you to your child, what's the most important word in that phrase? I love you. It's the word that comes next. I love you, but. Or I love you, and it stops. Then you know it's good news. I love you, but. So I love you is very ambiguous. And Paul begins by telling the Corinthians, I love you. And in this case, there's a but that follows. But let's take a look at the I love you. Uh, Verse 14 to, it goes through 14 to 18, but we'll take a moment just to look at 14 and 15. Now I'm ready to visit you for the third time. I don't want to be a burden to you. What Paul means is, Paul preaches for free. Well, he doesn't preach for free. When he goes to a new city, he doesn't charge them for preaching. Because that's really volatile. In the first century, there were a lot of people traveling around teaching philosophy, like our rock bands today. And you had to buy tickets to get in. And one of the accusations against them was, ha, they're only doing this for a living. They don't care about what they teach. They don't really believe this stuff. They just do it to make money. So Paul doesn't want people to think he's preaching the gospel to make money. So he takes money from other churches, and then he goes to a new city and preaches the gospel. I don't want to be a burden to you. I'm not going to charge money. Because what I want is not your possessions. I don't want your money. I want you. After all, it's not the children who should save up for their parents. The Corinthians shouldn't save up for Paul. But it's parents who should save up for their children. It's Paul who should give to the Corinthians, not they who should give to him. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have. Now, of course, he's impoverished. He has very little. And I will spend myself as well. Paul says, not only will I give you I won't take money from you. I will give money to you. Not only will I give money, but I will give myself. If I love you more, will you love me less? So you see... If I love you more, will you love me less? He's connecting with these people emotionally. He's warming them up for what's to come. And he knows that what's to come is going to be strong and it's going to be volatile. And if they're not on his side, if they don't understand that he's speaking out of love, they'll never receive it. 
if he hasn't conjured up in them, if, if they're not emoting love toward him now for all of his sufferings and all that he's endured, they're not going to receive what comes next. If I love you more, will you love me less? So he connects with them emotionally or tries to. And then his second point in 12, 19 to 21. And we'll just, for the sake of time, just read 20 to 21. I'm afraid that when I come, uh, I may not find you as I want you to be. And you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be discord and jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, the sexual sin, the debauchery in which they have indulged. You see how he starts? I'm afraid that when I come, I won't find you as I want you to be, and you won't find me as you want me to be. What he's saying is, I'm afraid when I come and see you, I'm going to find sin still prevalent in your midst. And he gives a list of sins. Discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition. And if I find that stuff, I'm going to have to deal with it. And then you're going to find me not as you want me to be. So there's a, he's warmed him up with, with love, and then there's an implicit threat here. I'm coming. And when I come, will I find you living for Jesus? Or will I find you living in sin? And if I find you living in Jesus, then we can have warm fellowship. But if I find you living in sin, I'm going to deal with it, and you're not going to like it. And he identifies what particular sins. Discourse, jealousy, slander, gossip, arrogance, disorder, impurity, sexual sin, debauchery, and so forth. Now, Paul's only hinting at that now. And remember, he started out, you could say Paul's playing a good cop, bad cop thing going on here. Because in the first paragraph, he says, I love you. Now he comes back to reconnect with them emotionally in the third paragraph. But now, it's not a nice emotion. Notice verse 13, this will be my third visit to you. You see, he started off in verse 12, 14, saying, this is my third visit to you. Now he comes back to this idea to reconnect emotionally. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Here he's citing the Old Testament. In a Jewish court of law, I couldn't bring a charge against you, or you couldn't bring a charge against me without witnesses. Particularly in a capital case, you had to have two or three witnesses agree. Remember at Jesus' crucifixion, they had to find two or three witnesses that would agree. And Paul, Paul says, okay, this is serious. This is like a court of law. This is my third visit. The Old Testament says you have to have three witnesses. Well, I'm the witness each time, but there's three witnesses here. Me, myself, and I. And he says, this is my third visit to you. Every banner must be established by the testimony of three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. Now, if you've been here for a while, you'll remember, because we looked at it earlier. Remember what happened when Paul went there the second time? He went there the first time he spent 18 months in that church. More than any, any amount of time he had at any other church. He spent 18 months there. Then the second time he came back to pay a visit and he found the place run wild. And he put his foot down and said, we, we, we are Christians, we don't live like this. And they got so angry, they threw him out. And then he had to send somebody else as an emissary to try and patch things up. 
I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. And they chased him out because they didn't like the warning. I now repeat it while absent. And they said to him, you know, you write these fierce letters, but when you come, you're, you, you can't stand up to us. So they're threatening to bully Paul. Notice what he says in verse 2. 13 to On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others. You see, first he starts off saying, I love you. And then he reminds him, you must live for Jesus. And now he comes back and says, look, I'm coming. You want to fight, I'll give you a fight. And he threatens him. I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others. And now he comes back, having reconnected with a more sinister, darker emotion. Now he comes back and he makes his point in verses 13, 5 to 10. And we'll just look at 5 to 6. High schoolers, you will, this will resonate with you, or any of you professionals who go through licensing exams, periodic licensing, relicensing exams, this should resonate with you. Notice how many times, six times, he tells us to examine ourselves. Verses 5 to 6. Examine yourself to see whether or not you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong, not so that people will see that we have stood the test, but so that you will do what is right, even though we may have seemed to have failed. What Paul is doing here is returning to that theme, the content about the need for holiness. But what he's doing is he's reminding them. He's reminding them that at the end of time, we will all appear before Jesus to give account of the lives we've lived, whether good or bad. And he says, examine yourselves now to make sure that you can pass that test then. Because, you know, if you fail the test now, in a self-test, this is like a, a pre-test that you do to yourself before you take a, a mid-year or a final. First, you test yourself. You know, a, a lot of these uh, textbooks will give you self-tests so you can see how much you know and don't know. And Paul says, give yourself a self-test now, because now, if you fail, you can do something about it. But at the end, if you fail, it's too late. Examine yourself. See whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Don't fail the test. I trust you will discover we have not failed the test, he says about himself. Let this be a reminder for all of us, whether in school or, or in, in a profession, as we take a test, you know that test anxiety that creeps up, especially, sorry, especially if you're Asian and you know you've got to get an A to pass this thing. I mean, at least by your own standards. See, I have an advantage. I can get a C and still pass. I may not want a C, but I can live with a C. Whenever you take these tests, remind yourself, this is not the test that matters. This is not a test that matters. Sure, if I don't do well on this test, I may not get into the school I want. Sure, if I don't do well on this test, I may not get the licensing and I may lose my job. But this is not the test that matters. And there is a test that matters for all time. So that's his point. And you see the rhythm of his argument here. I love you. Live for Jesus. If I have to, I'll fight you over it. Live for Jesus so you can pass this test.
Now, what does all that say to us? Let me draw three points from this. And the first point is more about the whole context, and particularly the interplay between I love you and watch out, I love you and watch out, or, or watch out, I love you. Uh, sometimes love requires a hard word. Sometimes, and you know this, you know this from dealing with your parents, you know this if you are a parent, sometimes love requires a hard word. Those we love, we discipline. Scripture says those whom God loves, he disciplines. Sometimes love requires a hard word. It's not because people, it's not because God doesn't love us that he talks like this. It's not because Paul didn't love the Corinthians that he talks like this. It's not because I don't care about you that I talk like this. Sometimes love requires a hard word. You know, and this is really countercultural today. For whatever reason. Maybe because of the positive psychology movement. Maybe because churches are so competitive today. This is really hard for churches to talk like this today. You know, Paul said, when I come, I'm going to knock you down if I need to. We, 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 don't even talk, we don't even like to talk about sin. I was on one website recently where, where the pastor was explaining in great length why they had to have a sermon series about sin. He didn't want to offend anybody. And, and it's not the pastor's fault. It's just the culture we live in. You can't talk like this anymore. You know, it's, it's like we have a home-on-the-range theology. Remember home-on-the-range? Where seldom is heard a discouraging word. Only now, it's where never is heard a discouraging word. All this constant positive affirmation. Now, Paul does throw in positive affirmation. He says, don't you realize that Christ Jesus is in you? He's got some confidence in them. But he says, be careful that you don't fail this test. So sometimes love requires a hard word. Love from God. Love from Jesus. The, the second point I would make is the central one here. Clearly from this passage, as throughout Paul's writings, as in Jesus' preaching, and we've got to be really careful how we say this, or what we, what we take it to mean. But in a sense, for salvation, in a sense, in a limited sense, in a careful sense, grace is not enough. Now, I can't stop there, and don't quote me there. But See, it's still grace. But what happens is that grace doesn't just send Jesus to die for us. See, what happened to Jesus after he died? He rose. If all Jesus did in your life was he died for you, then he's dead. And you're dead. Jesus died and he rose. And Paul says elsewhere, we die with him. We die to sin. And we rise with him. We rise to God. We rise to new life. Salvation requires not only a grace outside of us, this is a safer sense in which you can say salvation requires more than grace. grace uh, salvation doesn't require just grace outside of us, the reformers said. It requires grace inside of us. It's not that Jesus died out there alone. That's crucial. But it's that Jesus comes and lives within here and then transforms us. It's not enough that Jesus died for us. It's essential that he lives within us. And so the reformers taught this. 
we're saved by grace through faith alone, is how we quote them. But they didn't stop there. They didn't put a period at the end of that phrase, at the end of that sentence, that clause. They put a comma. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But saving faith is never alone. They put a comma. Saving faith is never alone. Why is it not alone? It's not because... Now, it's not like this. Please. It's not, Jesus died for me, now I must live for him. It's not, he did his part, now I must do my part. It's not, uh, he gave me grace, and now I must earn the rest of it. The grace is what transforms us and prompts us to live for him. But the reality is, if we don't live for him, we're not going to make it to heaven. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. So Paul's point is, moral virtue is essential. You can't claim to be a Christian if all it does is change what you think and believe. If it doesn't change how you live, then you're likely not a Christian. Now, the third point I want to draw from this, and it takes us back to Billy Graham's grandson and Keller and Carson, is this. For the last 50, maybe 100 years, maybe even 150, since the middle of the, 18th century, the 19th, middle of the 19th century, the, the evangelical church in America has really neglected this teaching in the Bible. But you can understand why. Because we keep flopping back and forth between these two extremes. Now, be careful. It's a real logical fallacy, really common logical fallacy, to suppose that the truth is the median between two extremes. That's not what I'm saying here. But, but we do bounce back and forth between these two extremes. We can go back in history and see this. You, you see, in Corinth, what happened was you've got Jews who come from a Hebrew Bible background, and they weren't successful in living for God. So they imposed that law all the more rigidly. By the time they came back to the uh, first century in, in Palestine, there was rigid imposition of the law to try and keep people holy, to honor God. Good motive, but wrong method. So rigid implementation of the law. Pharisees were not bad people. They loved God, mostly, and they wanted to live for God. But they got rigid about the imposition of the law. And so... Then you've got these Gentiles, the Greeks on, the, on this side, who were used to living however they wanted to live, and they become Christians, and now they're going to keep living however they want to live. And, and the, the Jewish believers say, no, you can't do that. And they try to impose the law. So we bounce from law, we bounce to licentiousness, and then back to law. Same thing happened. Why? Fundamentally, there's a lot of pieces of it, but the fundamental reason, why is the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church not united? What was the fundamental issue? See, it didn't start with Luther, but Luther was a big part of it. And Luther was a monk. He was trying to be a faithful Catholic, a faithful medieval, let's not call it Catholic, faithful medieval, medieval believer. And he also had maybe had a little touch of OCD. It's really hard to psychologize people today, let alone 500 years ago. But he was obsessive about sin. And he found no freedom in all the rules and regulations he'd been taught. And so he came, he read, as he was teaching the Bible, as he was teaching the book of Romans, he came to a new understanding of grace and began preaching that. And his understanding of grace is this, is that, is that God justifies us. It's not we who justify ourselves. Jesus died to justify us. Jesus died to make us righteous before God. 
And we're innocent. He, he, he looked at his sin in his life and he, I don't have to be oppressed by this because Jesus died for me. But you know, he did not stop there. But the Catholic Church heard what he was saying and they got really anxious because they said, if you talk like this, it's not our works, it's God's grace. If you talk like this, then people are going to start living any way they want. And the church really reacted. Now here's the irony. Is Luther's followers started living like that. It wasn't what Luther taught. But he said, he talked about his own followers. He said that they're like, because he was German, he said they're like drunk German peasants. They fall off the donkey on one side. He meant the side of the law. They got all this law. They're drunk. They fall off the donkey on one side. And you preach grace, and they finally manage to get back up on that donkey. And they realize it's not us earning salvation. It's, it's Jesus dying for us. You get them back on that donkey, and they're still drunk, so they fall off on the other side and start living however they want. And so he devised this slogan, and the reformers after him were saved through faith alone, yet saving faith is never alone. So we see the same problem in his day. And we see the same problem in our day. I'm going to use some names of people you might be fond of, but whatever. I mean, they're, they're out there, in the, the names are out there in the public. They've written books, so they can be responsible for what they teach. Philip Yancey is a great author, a very good, he came from a journalistic background, but he has a seminary degree. So, really easy guy to read, motivational, really heartfelt. But he made a fundamental mistake in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace? And a lot of people have read it. If you're older, you may have read it. And here's the mistake. Philip Yancey grew up in a Christian home, and he went to a Bible college back in the 60s. And boy, things were rigid then. Because, you know, the American culture is going wild, the long hair and the drugs and the sex. And so what did the Christians do? The Christian churches and their Bible colleges, boy, they put that law down. Don't do this or you'll go to hell. You know, and he grew up with all this gloom and doom. And he tried, broke free from it. And he found grace and was so excited about the freeness of grace. And, and so his book is reactionary. The book is right in what it says, but it's only half true. He's reactioning against that. And so he comes over here and says, grace. Now, he doesn't say live however you want. Although he comes awfully close to saying some of his examples that he doesn't qualify. He's trying to preach grace. But he didn't preach transformation. And so... Philip Yancey, there's a whole bunch of books on the market. Uh, you know, Chuck Swindoll has written like this. Uh, Charles Stanley, Andy Stanley. Any book you get about grace, this is really awkward to say. Any book you buy that has grace in the title, be careful. Because so often grace is the word we've used to say, anti-law, we've become pro-grace, and we've forgotten the rest of the story. And the rest of the story comes in this passage. We're saved through faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. Now, what we want to do, we must really be careful, particularly in a Chinese church. Well, we're in a church. We're not a Chinese church. We're not a Chinese congregation. In a church where a lot of people are Chinese background and your parents were really worried about you getting crazy with the American culture and they were really strict with you, it's really easy to become overscrupulous. And the Puritans were famous for this. Why was the 1800s in America so become so loose, Christian standards become so loose, Christian standards. Because the 1700s in New England was brutal. 
Not the original Puritans, but the second generation Puritans, the third generation Puritans. Boy, they got, they would examine themselves. Oh, they'd, they'd put themselves under a microscope. Gee, maybe even under a telescope in a way. I mean, they, they, they'd look so closely. Scientists, forgive me if I made a mistake with that analogy. They would look so closely at every detail of their lives. Oh, I did this. I lost my temper with my kids today. Maybe I'm going to hell. Maybe I'm not really a Christian. You know, and I don't, I'm not joking about OCD. People with OCD can really pick up on this. You know, and just like maybe somebody with OCD, might, the symptom might be washing their hands a hundred times a day. Other people might be confessing their sins a hundred times a day. Praying to receive Christ 20, 25 times just to make sure it sticks. You know, it, but it's, it's not always a psychological condition. Sometimes it's due to a spiritual condition. What we want to do is hold together these truths as compatible. As compatible. That Jesus loved me. And he died for my sin. And now he calls me to love him and live for him. One of our recent Bible studies, one of our Bible study leaders explained it like this. You know, because the question came up. The question was about discipleship. The study was about discipleship. And the question naturally came up is, if Christ forgives my sin, if Jesus died to save me, then why do I need to be a disciple? Why do I need to live for him? And the Bible, uh, Brian Che, Brian put it like this. You know, he said it's like getting engaged. I mean, getting engaged is a high point. Getting engaged is a wonderful thing. Getting engaged is a profession of love. It's a great. But if you get engaged and you never set a date, if you get engaged and you don't buy a ring, if you get engaged and you don't start shopping for a tux or a wedding gown, if you get engaged and you don't make a reservation with the reception hall, if you get engaged and you don't call a pastor and reserve the church, what is this thing you call engagement? This is not engagement. But let's take it a step further. If you then go and get married and you still live with your parents, if you then go and get married and you still go to your job and after the job you go out to play sports with your buddies or you go to the bar. If you get married and it makes no difference in your life, what kind of a marriage is this? It just makes no sense. So, living for Jesus. No, 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 no. Living with Jesus is part of what it means to be a Christian. And Brian is a great guy, and that's a great analogy because it's really positive. But bear in mind, as we finish here, Paul's analogy was different and not nearly so warm. So we want warm analogies, and we want the other kind of analogy, tough analogies too, because we look forward to weddings. I don't know anybody that looks forward to a test, and that's how Paul put it. So let's look at it positively. We live for Jesus. No, we live with Jesus. But bear in mind, if we don't put it positively, God's going to put it negatively. Examine yourselves to see if you really are in the faith, to see if you pass. But when we examine ourselves, he gave us the criteria here by which to examine ourselves. It's not every fit of temper. It's not every misconduct. It's not every bad word we say. It's not every little 
indiscretion he com- we commit. How did he say to test ourselves? Discord, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander and gossip, arrogance and disorder, impurity, sexual sin, debauchery. Paul is not urging us to become obsessed with every little thing we do wrong. What he is urging us to do is make sure there's clear signs that Christ is working in us, changing us. And if there's not, let's not assume we're believers. Let's come to him in repentance. Let's pray together. Father, help us to live with both of these truths that you sent Christ to die for us because you love us and our salvation is by grace through trusting in him. And yet you call us to live with him and to live with you. Help us, Father, to celebrate both of these truths together and hold them in the partnership that you intend. In Jesus' name, amen.